Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on Wednesday, 18th of October, 2023. The topic is, are screens making our young people sad and anxious? On the panel, we have Dr. Sophie Lee, postdoctoral research fellow at the Black Dog Institute. Dr. Candace Lewis, clinical psychologist and facilitator with the Black Dog Institute. And Sam, our lived experience representative. Chairing this session is Dr. Sarah Barker. Welcome, everybody, as part of Mental Health Month to our Expert Insights episode of Are Screens Making Our Young People Sad and Anxious? I'd like to begin with an acknowledgement of country. So Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. I'm in Nam or Melbourne and I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people as the traditional custodians of country here and to extend that respect to the traditional owners of all the lands where everyone is zooming in from today. And I'd especially like to pay my respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are joining us today. We pay our respects to elders past and present, and we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across Australia. So I'd like to introduce you to our guests. Uh, today we have Sophie Lee, we have Candice Lewis and we have Sam. Sophie, can I ask you to introduce yourself please first of all? Hi everyone, um, I'm a clinical psychologist and a postdoctoral research fellow at the Black Dog Institute. Um, my area of research or my um, the, the research that I focus on is in youth mental health and I'm particularly interested in understanding the factors that perpetuate or um, predispose young people to developing um, mental disorders. So we've been specifically looking at sleep, but also at um, digital technology and, and screen time and how it relates to youth mental health. Fantastic, Sophie. Thanks so much for joining us today and really interesting uh, research you're doing. Candice, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Uh, absolutely, Sarah. Thank you so much. Welcome, everybody. My name is Candice Lewis. I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist as well. I've been working in mental health now for just shy of 20 years. This is a topic that is close to, I think, all of our hearts. So it's great to see such um, great attendance today. Um, a lot of the work that I do is with um, young adults, younger people, particularly looking at the interaction between technology use and sleep, sleep being one of the like keystones and cornerstones of our mental health. So looking forward to learning and sharing as we go today. Great, Candice. Thanks so much for joining us. And Sam, a warm welcome to you. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you to everyone for uh, joining us. Um, so I'm Sam, and I um, am a lived experience representative to the Black Dog. I work with a, um, a lived experience group, uh, and we uh, basically communicate with the Black Dog um, about what the youth needs from uh, mental health services. Yeah, really important work. Sam, thanks for doing Absolutely. it. Thanks for, thanks for joining um, us today. No worries Thank you very much. Thank you. So, Sophie, as part of the... Future proofing study, your research is looking at the influence on screens on young people's mental health, particularly anxiety and depression. So I guess what we're all wondering, is screen time actually causing mental health concerns? What's that relationship? Can you tell us a bit about your research in that area? Yes, I can. Um so what we know about youth mental health is that um, over the past um, sort of 10 to 20 years, it has been steadily declining. And what is really interesting is that when that decline began, that coincided with the introduction of the very first iPhone. And so that has led some researchers to propose that this um, decline in youth mental health um, can be attributed to this unmitigated access that we now have to digital technology and to the online environment. And in support of those claims, what we do know from the literature and from our own future-proofing data is that there is a really strong correlation between screen time and reduced mental health. Um, and that's that. those patterns of results or that, that correlation has been replicated in multiple countries for multiple different mental health outcomes. So for depression, for anxiety, for sleep disturbance, you name it, it's been shown to be correlated with screen time. 
Now, I think what's really important to point out is that what we don't know is, um, so, so this data is all from cross-sectional studies, so it's all correlational. So we don't know the direction of the relationship or whether the relationship is a causal one. So we, we can't make any claims from this data about whether or not it is screen time that's actually causing this decline in youth mental health. So I'm giving a very sciencey researcher kind of response to that question, which is we really don't have the data to clearly say that digital technology or screen time or social media is is the direct cause of this declining mental health in in young people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it could be. So your hypothesis as to what it could be then, what are your thoughts? Um, I think that's a really comp- complex question and um, and there's, there's a lot about today's society that is very different to society 20 years ago. So not only do we have this unmitigated access to the online environment, but but the world has changed in so many other ways as well. You know, there's there's the economy, there's like the gig economy, uh, unstable employment for young people. There's, there are so many other factors that may be contributing um, to these reductions that we are seeing in youth mental health. And I think as a researcher, one of the really important questions that um, that we need to ask and that we're asking at the Black Dog Institute is what are the mechanisms that might be underlying this relationship between screen time and, and mental health? Because the relationship is clearly there. We just don't know what the mechanisms that are causing um, that relationship. We just don't know what they are at the moment. Sure. Very interesting. Really, um, yeah, really interesting to unpack that question and understand more about it. It would be really helpful to know. Yeah. and. Um, so in just in terms of whether young people identify as male, female, uh, non-binary, does that appear to have any relationship to screen use as well? Yes. So what we're really seeing is that the strength of the relationship between screen time and reduced mental health is stronger for um, people that identify as being female. Um why that is the case is not entirely clear. It has been um proposed that girls and boys, if we just look at the the binary genders, um, use technology differently. Um, And and, and there is data to suggest that boys do engage in more gaming um, and girls engage in more social media use. So because of those differences, those gender differences in how technology has been used, um, it has been proposed that uh, social media is more detrimental um, to to mental health um, than gaming, but it's it's a really tricky question to answer because um, there is evidence to suggest that gaming can have negative impacts on mental health as well, and that seems to be particularly around um, displacing other healthy activities, um, so like sleep physical exercise, um, even eating appropriately. Um, so yeah, again, a, a tricky question to answer and one that we really need to, un- we, we need more data and we need to understand it better. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I'm just thinking on the flip side of that in terms of social media, there could even be some positives in terms of that for connection and other aspects too. So yeah, yeah. Lots to tease out. Okay. Thank you, Sophie. Sam, how do you use screens and what motivates you to use them? Well, I use screens mostly because of my background with ADHD. I use screens to help me stay organised. So I try and find out what my weaknesses in my brain is, or well, not weaknesses, but downfalls, I should say, um, in my brain and try and use screens to help improve that. Um, And so one of those things is organisation with, I don't know if that sparks from my ADHD, but um, I think it does. And so that helps me stay organised, stay on top of tasks, stay on top of communicating with friends and family. Uh, and so that's basically how I, I try and use screens to improve the areas that I lack in, basically. Great. That's an excellent uh, strategy. Sounds really good. So there are some obvious benefits to you of screen use. Yep. What about some of the um, challenges of screen use as well? Well, I think that... Uh, once you sort of on this, once you're on the screen, it can be very easy to be sucked down the rabbit hole of of other things like games, social media. Um, it is a very fine line and slippery slope between just sort of using it for the right reasons and then you know, falling down that uh, that habit of quickly finding excuses to go on social media or play games and things like that. So, although it has a lot of potential and good, it's just very easy to 
going to the wrong thing, basically. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. And can you tell me um, how you know when they're not good to use for you? I guess if you think about kind of your warning signs or personal stress signature, what kind of comes up that indicates to you, "Mm, this isn't so good right now? Um, I think it's mostly um, due to, uh, for me at least, it's when it starts to change your behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, when it starts to um, change how you talk to others, how you treat others. And mm-hmm. another thing is um, when it starts to be all you think about, basically. Sure, um, sure. When it starts to be, you know, on playing in the back of your mind, you know, I, I wish I could be doing this instead. I wish I could be uh, on my phone talking to others. That's when it becomes a bit of a warning sign for me yeah, at least. sure, sure, sure. And I, I know in our conversation you mentioned it was others that picked up on that in you um, when perhaps screen use was getting a little bit too much. Yeah, it was my family and my friends that uh, quickly pulled me back into line, um, you know, that I was, you know, on the screens too much and, and doing the wrong thing on screens as well. Yeah, sure. Great. Great, Sam. Thank you. Candice, all behaviour has a function. What are your observations as a clinician and psychologist about the functions of behaviour of screen use for young people in your work? Oh, it's such a great question. And Sam, that was so useful hearing how, how you're framing up that use. Um, it's, you know, shaping how I'm thinking about that question now. I think one of the things that we see, particularly from a like clinical practice point of view, um, you know, I think it's a technology. It can be easy to demonise it. I think there's good and bad with the use of the technology. What I'm seeing from a, like when I'm working with families or working with young people, um, when I think it's when things start to go out of the balance and the use of the technology um, starts to replace other things, you know, um, as Dr. Sophie um, was, you know, introducing, looking at that um, link between sleep and looking at how screen use can then start to impact our sleep. Um, I think when, you know, kids are faced with difficult emotions, because, you know, adolescence is so much fun, um, but when there's difficult emotions and, you know, I might have an assignment that's causing stress for me, or I might be having interpersonal um, something that's happening with a friend that's distressing for me. You know, we've got this thing that's, you know, literally attached to us that we pull out and it feels good. So you get this kind of behavioral loop where, okay, I've got this dopamine hit, it's engaging. They're literally like a lot of the apps, particularly the social media apps, um, they're designed like slot machines. They're designed to keep us engaged and on them for as long as possible. It's very, very clever technology. So I've got this difficult emotion and then I've got something that instantly allows me to avoid it and feel better. Now, as a once or twice, that's I don't think that's such a big thing, but it gets reinforced over time. So I might be having the difficult emotion. My go-to is I you know, pick up my phone or I you know jump onto something and I feel better. So the next time I feel that emotion, that emotion, it makes it more likely. So I think when we're starting to see um, screen use, which is you know very broad, there's lots that sits underneath that, start to get into the way of real conversations, dealing with conflict, reading at the end of the day, getting to bed. We all know how important um, sleep is for our mental health. So looking at those mechanisms to help replace the screen use with you know, really healthy coping strategies, I think there's a lot of work that we can do around that. It's not about pulling it apart. It's about like reducing it. It's about what can we do to help um, not go to the phone as, as, the, as the first line or the frontline coping resource. Yeah, so coming up with other coping strategies as, as well. Exactly. And I find that way it's, you know, from a clinical point of view, sometimes the behaviour itself reduces because we've got far enough upstream we've dealt with the distress you know dealt with the coping strategies so you know the function of that becomes kind of you know not that frontline go-to yeah great yeah great thank you so much Candice so Sam what was the function of screen use in your life when your mental health wasn't in such great shape um it, for me it became a, a very big coping thing mm-hmm. um it became a place for me to escape uh wearing a mask that I had uh, all throughout high school. And so it gave me a place to uh, to let out a side of me that I, I suppose I didn't like because I'd spent so long trying to be something I wasn't, um, you know, with the masking. And so it became a, a big coping thing for me. I felt anxious. I felt like I wasn't uh, liked at school or I, I wasn't a part of things at school. I would uh, I'd use social media and the phone, my phone, to... Uh, 
to cope with that. And uh, the moment it becomes a coping thing, I think you're you're in real trouble. So um, for me, it was just a, a coping mechanism to deal with my insecurities as a person. Yeah, right. Yeah. And what differences do you notice in your screen use now that your mental health is in much better shape? Well, I, it's as I said before, it's what I'm using it for. Um, I think uh, not only has my screen time definitely gone down, um, but that's what I'm spending my time on my screen doing. It's not so much, well, it's not social media at all now. I've given that up and uh, it's not games anymore. I've given that up as well. So it's it's all, you know, organisational apps, emails, text messages and things like that. So I can still stay in communication with people, but also, um, you know, focus on the task at hand, I guess. Yeah, terrific. Thanks, Sam. So, Kat, Candice, your advice then to young people and parents and other caregivers um, when they have concerns about their young person's screen use, what what do you, what what are your recommendations? It's also advice to self, right? Like this is yeah. a human conversation, isn't it? It is. Um, I think when we really think about screens, you know, just um, like as Sam was saying, um, differentiating what what has actually been done on the screens. Like it's a really big difference if we're just scrolling through social media or checking back in to see if something's been liked a whole lot of times versus doing schoolwork, creating a PowerPoint that we're going to deliver, you know, to our classmates the next day. Um, so I think if we if we're really putting parameters in place. It's the wear of technology. So, you know, in our own, in my own household, you know, <laughs> I remember my daughter, my eight-year-old saying, Mom, can I give you some feedback? Sometimes when I ask you feedback, right? When um, Sometimes when I ask you a question, you're on your phone. So kids are bloodhounds for double standards and kind of, you know, things that right for one person. So in our household, we have a digital sunset. So 90 minutes before bedtime, whatever that is for the person, um, like reducing screen use. So um, I know I bang on about how important, um, you know, if we're, you know, getting that idea of the rabbit hole, we're going into our phones, into social media, exploring different things. We don't remember it the next day. So it doesn't really have that much, sometimes it doesn't have that much value. So protecting sleep space. So where am I using technology? What's the purpose of me using technology? Um, what am I doing instead? Um, and what kind of things, like what sort of timeframes do I have around it? So if we know that um, you know, we can have some entertainment, we can, you know, chat with friends, do those sorts of things, but 90 minutes before bedtime, no phones in bed, which means sometimes I've got to like hide the phone when my daughter comes in unexpectedly during the night, um, but it's such a critical thing. I think the thing to um, might be useful outside of the conversation today is amazing resources online. This thing is practical, like sitting down with your family and, you know, watching something like The Social Dilemma. Um, so not telling, like I think that's one of the big messages I'd love to communicate today, which is it's not about like, you know, taking the phones away or taking the technology away. You know, you'd be the same. Like if someone tells me what to do, I'm like, mm. but if I'm choosing it, if I can understand the why of it, so really taking that time, understand the screen use for ourselves, for our families, looking to see like this is how these things are set up so I can make a choice around using it for good using it for the best, knowing those early warning signs like you and Sam were talking about, which is so helpful to hear, um, and then put some parameters around that feels fair for everybody in the family. And you'll know, like you'll sleep, your partner will sleep, your kids might, and having it really compassionate because these things are designed to keep us engaged. Um, but having some really clear, this is what we all agree with, watch the social level, we're sitting down, what do you think is fair for us as a family? Um, what a powerful thing to be able to do. So there's no screens at dinner. It's not a choice. It's not maybe on Tuesdays, maybe not on Thursdays, but there's this consistency. And if you're finding that, you know, from a clinical point of view, if you're finding that it's really hard, like say, you know, kiddos has been on it for a period of time and that's their go-to, um, you know, engaging in support early, it takes a long time for people to engage in the right resources. So, you know, getting as much information, but knowing that you're not alone as a parent as well, like they're speaking to your local doctor, you know, speaking to a coach, to a counsellor, um, genuinely, um, like all of those things can be um, supportive. They'll say the same thing as a parent you've been saying, <laughs> but it's outside the family unit. So, yeah, really practical and hopefully really useful um, tips to self as well. Yeah, no, they're great. They're great ideas. Thank you. Sophie, any recommendations you would have for young people and for parents and caregivers around screen use? 
yes, I think there's there's a few considerations. Um, <clears throat> one is, and and you've um, mentioned this, Sarah and, and Sam, has, clearly his use of technology is very beneficial for him, but I think an important thing is to remember that um, there are aspects of the online space and environment that are really beneficial um, to the people who are using them. So um, to just go into it, like, you know, what we know is that digital detox doesn't actually improve mental health, um, potentially because you're you're preventing the benefits from mental health, from technology use, um, as well as preventing the harm. So I think a really important question um, to ask yourself or to ask your children is what is their motivation for using um, their technology? Are they using it as a way to regulate their emotions? Is that actually having a positive long-term impact or is it preventing them from perhaps engaging in more adaptive or more helpful forms of emotion regulation? Um, so I think these, these questions are really important because you don't want to take away the technology and then have them without these, um, these benefits that they're receiving. So understanding why they're using it, um, potentially encouraging that form of use or finding behaviours that can replace um, what it's being used for. Um, so what we find with young people is we do a lot of work looking at bedtime procrastination and often it's device use that is delaying bedtime. Um, but what we discovered is that this happens more in young people who are experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression and they're using their devices as a way to, as, um, as Candice was saying before, as, as a way of coping with those emotions. Um, and so we need to be really conscious that if we say, okay, no, no devices, no screens before bed, we're give, giving those people um, the strategies that they need to be able to regulate their emotions so they can actually fall asleep um, at an appropriate time. So I think that's that's one really important consideration when and, and every individual is so different. So um, so really tailoring um, that intervention around screen time and device use for the individual. So they're still receiving the benefits, you know, connecting with people online, connecting with like-minded groups who are interested in some bizarre thing that their friends are not interested in, um, those sorts of things, whilst also mitigating the harms. Thank you, Sophie. Yeah, really important thoughts. Sam, what about your advice to young people and parents when there's concerns about screens and screen use? Um, I think for me, it's a bit of a trust thing. So like I, I had to trust that my family were doing what was best for me by telling me that, um, you know, my screen time and what I was doing on screens was wrong. And I think that it's also for parents to trust their kids in that they will sort of come out through the other side of this as long as they put the right steps in to uh, to deal with the addictions or the the up screen times, I guess. So it's for, for my family at least it was a massive trust thing and working out that I trusted that my parents were coming from a good place and that my parents also trusted me to make the right decision with the right information at hand. Thanks, Sam. So um, the current national government guidelines are not tailored to age. So two hours of screen time is recommended from anyone from two years old right through to 80 years old. Um, what are your thoughts on what would be helpful guidelines for young people's screen use? I'm happy to start with any of you. <laughs> you will have, have different thoughts there. Um, Sophie, would you like to start? Yes. Um, so I think these very generic guidelines are not particularly useful um, because technology is and, and screens are just so integrated into our lives and particularly post-pandemic, um, uh, you know, they're used for schoolwork, they're used for communication, they, they're used for so many different things. So um, saying to, recommendations to limit screen time to two hours is just not particularly helpful. Um, I think one of, and Candice might be able to expand on this a little bit more, but I think one thing that really needs to be considered is making sure that time spent on screens is not displacing other important activities. Um, so it's not displacing sleep. It's not getting in the way of face-to-face um, -face social interactions. It's not getting in the, in the way of... Um, of, you know, all those other really important things that young people need to be doing to make to make sure that they're 
they're developing appropriately in terms of psychologically, emotionally, and physically. Um, I don't think that you can just put a blanket recommendation. I think that you really need to look at the individual, what they use technology for, and and really tailor guidelines for that particular person. Mm-hmm. That's a really really interesting point. So yeah, so it's it's a tricky thing to have a national guideline on, probably. Then yeah, <laughs> um, Candice, your thoughts. Yeah, I think very similar, you know, four hours sitting on Facebook versus, you know, four hours getting a project ready, you know, working online with someone that, you know, is in another suburb, be a school assignment or or whatever it might be. There's such different things. So, I completely agree like that, giving a two hours a day, like my my screen time's already blown now, um, you know, for that to be the case. So, really kind of looking at the function. And, and I think that's one of the things that can be, you know, depending on the like length of use, like I think about my daughter's age, she's eight, and she's really growing up with, you know, that little bit more awareness around um, technology um, and like some of the consequences of staying on it for too long. Like we've had to, I really liked what um, Sam was saying about like not having a like this mutual trust. But there are also some, and there are also some things like at the moment, um, like we make sure she hasn't got things like, um, you know, Instagram or um, Snapchat or um, TikTok, I'm showing my age. (laughs) You know, those sorts of things. And particularly at the moment, those ones where you're just scrolling and you're not sure what's going to come up, which is like that slot machine type of effect. Uh, Because there's so much um, in the media and in um, kind of happening in the world at the moment, like vicarious trauma is, you know, a real thing. So getting exposed to, she came across a um, a trailer for The Exorcist um, oh. on the phone the other day in her sleep. Um, and, you know, I just marinate in shame, you know, realising that happened. So please don't judge me too much. Um, but it's happened. But it's this real world sort of experience where how do we kind of find that balance of making sure that, you know, just as Sophie was saying, like having the like being able to down gear at the end of the day, being able to have awkward conversations when no one's on their phone at dinner and we're not sure what to talk about, you know, things like conversation cards, if, you know, having a digital free, you know, mealtime is new, making that easier for the first couple of months and getting on and getting some conversation cards that are just prompts and then it takes over from there. But we go to things that work and make sense for us in the moment so I think that's really one of the themes is, you know, like what you said, Sarah, like what's the function of this and how can we how can we meet that need in a way that sets us all up for success, the family, for the young person? Because um, we're learning. We're learning. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And needs change over time too um, in, in people and in families. So it's perhaps conversations around that regularly. Yeah, yeah. And looking at what they are. Great. Sam, what about your ideas about guidelines? What are your thoughts there as a young uh, person? I completely agree with Sophie and Candice. I, it's, people are at different tolerance levels to, uh, to how much they can expose themselves to a screen before it becomes a bad habit. Um, you know, if you had asked me a year ago, I would have, you would take me half an hour to then be addicted to my phone, whereas someone now and who's, you know, works with screens, that uh, do, their job relies on screens, you know, they can spend hours on screens and it doesn't have that same hold on them. So I, I don't think the two hours for everyone is a fair estimate. Everyone's got different tolerances to, to screens. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting idea of different tolerances too, isn't it? And and I guess it depends on task too and what we're engaging in that's um, right, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, really, really good points. Yeah. So what practical ideas and strategies do each of you have to help support young people develop healthy relationships with devices, so to promote health and mental health. I'm happy to start with any of you, but Sophie, I'll go to you. (laughs) Um, As Candice mentioned, I think one of the really important things is to put devices away before bedtime. Um, We, we, you know, what young people are saying to us is that the, the content can be quite 
hyperarousing and that in and of itself can prevent sleep. But there's also some indication that that blue light can sort of mess with melatonin release and actually delay sleep onset. So um, putting devices away before bedtime is is one really good strategy. I can actually see someone asked in the Q&A, what's the best way parents can help their teens use screens less? Um, and I, I go back to my point about working out what is the motivation or the purpose of the screen use in the team and finding ways to replace that with non-screen-based activities. So, if they're on their screens for entertainment or to alleviate boredom, then helping them find other ways to achieve that same goal that's not using a a screen-based device. and again, hopping back to my point, which is which makes things quite difficult, is that you can't just take a blanket approach. Different things are going to work with different different young people. So some young people might need really strict um, rules around when they can and they can't use screens. Um, you know, just for a personal example, I have two children. One will put his screens down without any problem and go and do something else. The other one is yeah loves his screens it's actually like you know we'll be late in the mornings if he was allowed to have his devices before school so we have rules in place where there's no screens in the morning um before school and actually we have no screens um after school on a weekday as well um but i think one son needs that for us to function as a family. The other son, the the other son has to adhere to those rules as well, but he he wouldn't actually need to have those strict guidelines because he's much more capable of independently regulating his time spent on screens and making sure he's, you know, ready for school, at dinner, done his homework, all of those sorts of things. So I think it really is working out what is the function of the screens how you can replace that with other behaviours if you are wanting um, to get your child or your client to to be engaging in screens less um, and really looking at their individual capacity to regulate their own use because the more agency you give a young person, the more effective the the strategy or or the, the, um, you know, those changes are going to be. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Brilliant suggestions. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's really about those conversations about the function of, of you know, what, what's it serving and how can we make sure those needs are met? Yeah. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you. Candice. I was just thinking of really extending on um, the conversation as it's unfolding is, you know, thinking about things like um, those contingencies that are set up. So really just sort of pausing to think about, like we're busy, like you know, many of us would say, like, you know, we're an eight out of 10 stressed a lot of the time, you know, and you kind of get into that command and control, like a lot of households between what, seven and 8.30, it's like a military operation, right? Yeah. So it can be like, you can be tempting, like get off your phone, da, 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 you're like, you're not paying. And so like kids love friction, they love limits, they, they, they want something to kind of, you know, butt up against. And so I think what that does is like you've set up a kind of combative interaction and we've all Uh been, I've been there, I teach this stuff and I've been there, right? Um, Uh So kind of being able to take that step back and really thinking about just like what you were saying, how do we set up these kind of non-combative contingencies where like, so with my own daughter in the morning, um, we tend not to have uh, too much like technologies just because it takes us so long to get ready. but she knows that if she makes a bed, puts the laundry down, I'll put some water out for the dog, like there's a list of things that she's got there. And once she's done all of that, if she's got a minute to herself left, you know, she can jump onto a tablet and, um, you know, ha- like, you know, have a bit of a play with things. Um, but it tends not to be for a long period of time. Same thing at the end of the day, like until she can say, you know, this is the homework that I've done. These are the, so there's those contingencies that are set around it. Um I have to talk to my husband about setting up those contingencies for us. <laughs> no, but I think that really kind of deliberate um, way of thinking about if this, then this, so that it's not in the moment of frustration where we're having different reactions depending on, so we've been ignored, we're tired for the hundredth time, jump off the, but being able to go, okay, I want this change. How do I, you know, I love that sort of idea of agency on autonomy. How can I help this person choose what's right for them? Good information with that information about how important sleep is and how distressed we can feel the next day. A couple of nights of poor sleep, you've got more cortisol, which is a stress hormone in your system. So you're more reactive with your friends. You don't concentrate as well. It's harder to take information in. So if you keep that, keep cycling over time. So 
kids, you know, kids can taking this information in. Um, how do we help them understand for them what it means? Guidelines, but particularly giving some family-based agreements. Yeah, um, sure. How we best together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and perhaps even reviewing those agreements, you know, as kind of, yeah, as time <laughs> goes on too. Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you, Candice. What about, um, Sam, your ideas for strategies for young people to develop healthy relationships with devices and screens so that because I guess mental health and health can benefit from screens too, as you've shown. What, what ideas do you have there? I think that uh, it's just important to understand that, that like screens definitely have their place and that you don't need to completely get rid of screens. Um, it's just coming down to, okay, how can I use screens to better my life and what's holding me back from being the best version of myself? And, you know, it's some kids, it's, it's social media that's causing them to feel anxious. Well, okay, let's remove that aspect or reduce that aspect of, of my screen use and what's something that I, you know, do poorly in that I screens could use um I could use screens I should say sorry to um to improve my life and my lifestyles so it's trying to you know throw up what's the positives what's the negatives how can I increase the positives how can I reduce the negatives it's that's what worked for me at least okay and yeah if we think about um advice to parents and also resources that might be available for parents in this area what um what sorts of advice to parents for healthy healthy relationships with screens and I guess um, accessing the parts of screens that can be really positive for young people too. Sophie? Um, an analogy that is more and more frequently being used in this space around screen time and mental health is um, is the dangers of the ocean. So, um, you know, the ocean can be a really dangerous place if, if you don't know how to swim, if you, you don't know to swim between the flags, if you don't know how to read the conditions, but it can also be a really um, enjoyable space to be in um, and you can get a lot of pleasure and benefit from um, swimming in the ocean. So I think what that analogy is really saying is that it's not the technology or, or the screen time itself that is the problem. It's potentially um, knowing how to navigate your use of technology and, and being aware of the potential dangers and having the skills to know um, when use is beneficial and, and when it's harmful. Um, and so I think really what we need to do as, as researchers is, is to work out effective ways of teaching young people and, and you know, the broader community in general, um, how we go about doing that. And I think actually um, speaking with young people like Sam and, uh, and they're, they're doing it already themselves without any guidance from us, you know, they're, they're starting to work out how to create um, virtual environments that really do promote and support their mental health. You know, so they'll, they'll on on TikTok they'll unfollow content creators that you know where the content makes them feel bad, or you know they know how to respond to cyberbullying, and um, they are themselves already upskilling in in these sorts of things. And I think for for parents and for clinicians that are working with um, with young people, it's really about providing them that guidance to know how to navigate that space so they can still enjoy it and get the benefits from it um, while avoiding the harms. Yeah. What a great analogy that it being like the ocean. It's so true, isn't it? It's really, yeah, having the skills to swim and navigate and to be able to enjoy it and to be able to sense when there's danger too. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I really like that. Really useful. Candice, your advice you give to parents for creating that healthy kind of relationship with um, screens for young people. Yeah, it's really just to continue on the like ocean idea. Like we're all learning to swim. Like even there's something that's been there for you know the last twenty years. We've seen changes around mental health, particularly over the last decade, from my understanding. Um, having from a from a how we respond point of view, um, one of the things that I find myself having conversations about is really taking a curious approach. What are you, what are, what are you looking at? You know, yeah. what's there? And my daughter will come out with Mukapom, which is a little Pomeranian she watches. 
And she like, you know, particularly younger, like, you know, that that sort of younger age group, you know, upwards, they, they want to share with you what they're looking at. That changes with time. Um, but really looking at taking that kind of collaborative, like, well, I'm working with you. Like, you know, in psychology, we call it like externalizing the issue. So instead of the phone becoming, no, it's your issue, but you're, but you're being controlling, but no, but I want to use it. And it becomes this tug of war between. I talk to parents about, okay, you got to buddy up with your kids. <laughs> You and me, we've got this issue to solve. And this issue is this thing that, you know, is, I can't remember what you look like anymore. I know you need a haircut because that's all I see. So how do we, you know, how do you join? How do you kind of collaborate? That's really a theme that's come through this session today from um, hearing the other panellists is how do we have this not come between relationships but have it as something that, you know, this is a tool like just, you know, as um, Dr. Sophie was saying, like it's a beautiful thing to immerse yourself in. It can be constructive and collaborative and creative um, but it's also exposing, um, again, particularly our young people to things that we just didn't grow up with. Exposure to porn, exposure to violence, exposure to the Exorcist trailer. Right? It's just that that's a surprise. It's not 9 p.m. after 9 p.m. on TV on Channel 7. It's it's something that's kind of working its way through. Um, so I really think having that, working on the relationship and then looking at um, how we talk with our kids and how we inform and educate um, our young people around um, the good and bad of technology, I think that's I think that's the best platform. Uh, and looking at what's the role, just like we've also said today, what's the role that this is serving? Because if you are finding that you know it's really difficult for you know there's um, you know, refusal to go to bed at the end of the day and like we've just taken the phone, um, then we want to slow that whole process down and think about, okay, we might have just pulled this too quickly. Um, let's see if there are other things. So whether it's breathing strategies um, that help like reduce the nervous system arousal, whether it's you know introducing reading and talking about what we're reading, whatever it might be, but things that help set, I keep using that language of set the family up for success rather than it become a power struggle, just like with food. Like we, we want to stay out of those. Yeah. And that, I think that's a really lovely idea of thinking about, um, yeah, that collaboration between family members around that and externalizing the problem, which is the screen use that's getting in the way. It's a really nice way of getting some teamwork around that. Yeah. Yep. Really nice idea. Thanks so much, Candice. Um, and Sam, advice you would have for parents of young people for, well, for developing that healthy relationship with screens? Well, I mean, being a, being a young person, um, what I really appreciated from my parents um, and from other parents I've seen with their kids as well is offering a place of support and offering a, a, a different pathway to, um, to behave with screens but not forcing it on them because I think if you, the moment you force on some kids, I mean, different kids will respond differently, but um, some kids, if you try and force this different way of doing things on them, then that might send them back into their shell and then you'll never get them out again. So I think it's offering a place and just sort of nudging it in them and, and hinting it to them that there is a better way of, of doing things, but it's, it's also up to you to make that call because I'm not, it's not worth losing a relationship with your child over. Yep. So it's 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 a gentle approach, and it's yeah, opening yeah. up possibilities. It's, yeah, which I know some parents will want to go in and just make it better for their kids, but it's it's a bit of a battle. It's sort of like the parents versus the phone, and you want to try and work out a way, a healthy way, to keep a relationship with the with the child, teach them better ways to use screens. Because as I said, it's you know, screens have a lot of potential to do great good in in this life, but. Um, you know, you, you got to try and, to, for me at least, you got to try and just ease into it a bit, not just force it on the child. Sure, sure. Yeah, great, Sam. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and Sophie, you mentioned to me some really great resources, which I'll mention at the end, but did you want to talk to um, some of the what the US Surgeon General um, report says too? Yes, so um, so this is a report that was released, um, I think, a couple of months ago now. Um Really, I guess the take home from the report was saying that we we don't have enough research into um, in, into the area around screens and and particularly social media and mental health. Um, so there's no evidence to suggest that it's not doing harm, but the evidence to suggest that it's doing harm is kind of limited as well. So we really need to understand um, we under, need to understand this space 
um, more. And I think the real challenge for researchers working in this area is technology is evolving faster than we can run our research studies. Um, and so you'll think, wow, I've just figured something out. And then the kids aren't using that app anymore or it's, it's changed. So it's, it's completely different and, and the potential harms associated with all the concerns related to it and, and, and no, like a different. Um, so it is a very challenging space to kind of be working in and to keep up with. But I do, I do agree that we really, uh, we need to be working on how to actually um, provide young people and parents and clinicians with more nuanced guidelines to help them guide young people to use their devices in a way that supports their mental health. Um, and I, I can see a, que a question in the Q&A around, um, you know, exposure to inappropriate content and, um, and parents not being able to monitor that. And I think that is one of the real challenges in this space is that, especially with, with apps like Snapchat, where, you know, there's the sort of like everything disappears really quickly. So parents don't really know what, what is going on. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tricky things that need to be navigated, um, to, to support young people. And I think maybe, I mean, you said Candace and Sam might be able to expand on this point a little bit more, but I think that idea of teaching the young people to have the skills themselves um, so that it's not necessarily relying on parents to know exactly what's going on, but hoping that you can teach the young people how to manage those situations themselves might be one, one way of getting around that. Obviously, ideally, we'd want our children um, or our clients to be able to talk to us about these difficult situations. But um, as, as John said in the chat, it's not always the case. So what do you see as making the most powerful difference to young people's mental health and well-being in relation to screens? What, are the, what, are the, what would be the big thing for each of you? Sophie. I would love for the big tech companies like Meta, for example, to share the huge amounts of data that they collect um, with academics um, so we can start to answer that, some of these questions and answer them in real time. Um, we just don't, we don't have the capacity to collect that sort of data and, um, and, and they don't share it. They keep it very much to themselves and we don't know what they use that data for. So um, I guess, that's my answer to that question is I would, I would love it if they um, gave us open access to that data so we could, um, we could use it to help, yeah, help understand how screens are affecting mental health and, and how they can be used to potentially even promote mental, positive mental health. Sam, what do you see as making the most powerful difference to young people's mental health and well-being with screens? I think it's uh, sort of showing a different way of, of treating screens and and I think uh, a lot of kids use it as a as a coping thing and a, as an escape as well. For for a lot of kids, screens is just an escape from a harsh reality um, of life. And uh, if we can sort of show them that show kids that screens don't have to be what gets you through the day, it's you mm. know things that um, like just general interactions with friends, with family, things like that. I think would be the biggest make the biggest impact to kids as far as screens and their mental health goes. That Screens doesn't have to be the be all and end all as far as getting through, you know, a bad period of your life, I suppose. Yeah, great, Sam. Thank you. And Candice? I was just reflecting on that. It's such a hard one to sort of like boil down to that one. I think from a powerful, like how do we magnify the positive role of technology? Um, I think over time we get more better and better resources around how to talk to like kind of scaringly younger and younger people about things like porn, about things like bullying, um, giving kids skills so that they can have the language to use when they're asked for things that are a breach. And I don't mean like in a big kind of way, but even in like just in a friendship group and they're asked to yeah. say something or share something or talk about something in a way that's not appropriate. So, you know, I think it's more like, like more and more usable, like easy to access, easy to language resources that help parents then help their kids. Um, so I think it's, I suppose I'm putting the adult in the um, kind of centre field there um, and, you know, having having kids have that sense of confidence and control that they 
can use it for the good um, that it's possible um, and recognise that some of the things that are free and easy aren't necessary, are in no way designed to serve them or benefit them, um, which is alarming because they're also nicely coloured and pictured and inviting. Um, the information is key. Great, Candice, thank you. And Sam, last question for you. One thing you'd like young people who are experiencing mental health concerns and perhaps feeling stuck in their relationship with screens to know. Something that I would love for kids to understand is that that doesn't have to still be them. Um, they're probably not proud of their addiction and a lot of kids actually know that in themselves that when they're addicted to a screen, although sometimes they don't want to admit it, you know, I bet a lot of them know. So if they can understand that this addiction doesn't have to be them, it doesn't have to rule them, and that it actually could be the making of them, it could be the thing that, you know, sets them up for, for great success in being able to beat this addiction, um, then I think that if they can understand that, then they're halfway done to beating it, you know. This life and this sort of trail they're going down of being addicted to screens and not uh, having, as a Example of that being uh, having bad mental health because of screens. I think if um, if you understand that this can be a bit of a moment for you to turn and and change your relationship with your screen and therefore change your relationship with yourself, then I, that would be my thing for kids, basically. Great. So it can it can be an opportunity. Yeah. yeah exactly. That's right. Yeah. Great, Sam. Thank you. That's a a really great um, message. All right. So. Um, I would just like to refer everyone to some e-mental health tools. So um, Why Safe has great cyber safety education. The e-safety commissioner has some really excellent information and resources. And as Sophie uh, mentioned before, the US Surgeon General's report has a section on social media and youth mental health um, with some really interesting information as well. Uh, in terms of the clinicians in the audience supporting your own mental health, we have the Essential Network for Health Professionals at Black Dog Institute. It's got a whole lot of excellent resources um, for helping us as uh, practitioners to maintain our own um, mental health and to support also our patients' mental health um, too. So um, there's... Yeah, screening tools, um, peer support, and there's also a connection to one-on-one -on -one clinical care that's available as well uh, with clinicians, and that's not Medicare-based and it's free. There's also a burnout module, which is new and excellent, um, and that's available on demand as a learning module as well. We'd love you to connect with Black Dog Institute. Um, you can do that by coming to our website and we've got lots of different uh, health professional training and you can also follow us on social media as well. I would like to thank each of you, Candace, Sophie and Sam, for sharing your thoughts today um, and your, yeah, um, responses were really um, considered and you've shed a lot of light on this. I've learned a lot from each of you. Thank you to everyone who's come today. I wish you a great Mental Health Month and, um, yeah, thank you everybody for coming. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.